Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I'm Royfield Brown, who's back home in the land of my birth, England. I'm in London and it's dark and it's damp as we uh, wave goodbye to September. Today we are joined by Justin Higgins, the King of Clubhouse. Justin has seven years experience in communications and policy experience in US politics. Now, before his career in PR, Justin led the legislative and media strategies addressing Hurricane Maria and was an appointed official for the Democratic government of Puerto Rico. Prior to switching political allegiance to the Democrats, Justin was an advisor to a US congressman and managed a national opposition research portfolio for the RNC during the 2016 presidential campaign to influence top-tier print and broadcast outlets. And he must have done a good job because Trump was elected. If you're in the audience right here and now, you are a denizen of Clubhouse. So you'll know of Justin. Justin runs Politics and Media 101, one of Clubhouse's uh, shining success stories in terms of being a room which gets consistently great guests. Justin Higgins, welcome to Mid-Atlantic. How are you? Thank you very much, Royfield. I'd like to first say that we've become friendly through Clubhouse, and you've been a great participant on our shows. You ask some of the most intelligent questions, and we love, me and my politics and media 101 team, absolutely love the Mid-Atlantic and your other podcasts and listen every week. So Justin, thank you very much for having Justin, me on the show. Don't, don't try and button me up. <laughs> Listen, first off, you always frame your interviews by talking about the 2016 election and the fact you actually changed political allegiance. And I alluded to that, obviously, with my intro. I think we should actually go back a step. You don't talk too much about Justin Higgins growing up. So where is home? And tell us about your first formative political opinions. What were they and how did you come by them? Where's home, Justin? 
Great question, Royfield. Home for me is in Stratham, New Hampshire, which is next to a port town, Portsmouth, which people would probably not know if not for the fact that a lot of nuclear submarines built right in that port. And it's about an hour north of the great, I'd call it the Athens, the modern day Athens, Boston, Massachusetts, with all of the great academic institutions in the area. So I grew up in in the Northeast and it was part of a working class, lower middle class family that definitely had to work hard just to, you know, put food on the table, roof over our head and and make it in this country. So for the British listeners of this podcast uh, or the Canadians, describe where you grew up politically. Does it lean Democrat? Does it lean Republican? Yeah. So my family, which had a large influence on my early formative political years, my dad was a Vietnam veteran and my mother was also conservative despite working for the government of Massachusetts. So both my parents had Republican leanings, not what you'd see today, not what my mother is today, which is a Trump supporter, but, you know, old school conservative leanings. And the area I grew up in for British, UK, international listeners is very, very important to American politics every four years in so much that it is the second primary state for presidential elections. So what does that mean? That means that if you're a presidential candidate and you want to have a chance at winning a general election or getting the nomination, you come to New Hampshire. So everybody from Donald Trump to Barack Obama to Hillary Clinton and George W. Bush, they have all come to New Hampshire. And I think that that has played a very, very big role in kind of getting me interested in politics and just sparking the fire that is the passion that I have for American politics. So like little young Justin, when he was wearing short trousers, what did you want to be? Did you actually want to be a congressman? Was politics a burning passion even then? Or are we watching He-Man cartoons like other sensible boys running around in short trousers? <laughs> well, Royfield, nobody has ever confused me with anybody that is sensible. So let's <laughs> I didn't want to be a politician or work in politics. My goal, Royfield, was to be a major league baseball player. So while other kids were watching cartoons on the weekends, I was listening to sports talk radio and either hitting a baseball off of a tee or throwing, playing catch with my father but definitely working on baseball and listening to sports 24-7. Politics couldn't have been further from my mind, my friend. But that's kind of interesting for me because I always get this real sense when I listen to you that you are an American. You're an American patriot. So, you know, there's that kind of sense of Americana with you. And and there, again, you kind of underlined it for me with with your love of, of baseball, which is, I think, romantically still called America's national pastime, even though it's most obviously football now. It is it is kind of football. But yes, I mean, I'm American as American pie for, for all these listeners. And I, I think, I don't know, I, I was I played all the sports when I was younger. But being left handed, where 5% of the population is left handed, and 40% of Major League Baseball pitchers are left handed, definitely helped the fact that I was also just really good relative to everybody else helped me just 
be good at something and really grow a passion for it as well. And then the other parts of America that, that are in my upbringing are my mom used to always have me go and, and feed work at the soup kitchens once a month, especially during the holidays. So public service was instilled in me in a young age. And then Royfield, I mentioned my father was a Vietnam veteran. He hated the Vietnam War. He hated the politicians that sent him overseas for these needless expeditions to capture these hills in a faraway land and then just give them up right away. But what he kind of instilled in me, in addition to the public service, which is kind of the best of America, was to always be proud in America and that you can always stand up, voice your opinion and try and change America for the better. So that was just like in my upbringing. So that's kind of probably why I sound so American. I think that's a really kind of interesting point of modern American history is America's retreat and defeat in, in Vietnam, that it does actually knock generations' confidence. You know, LBJ, LBJ, how many kids did you kill today? You know, the disillusionment that your father's generation actually which many people in your father's generation then had with America and American ideals. It's interesting that it didn't push him, let's say, into more left-leaning politics, that he still kept his faith in, in the American system. And in, in lots of ways, it, it almost redoubled it. And, and you kind of still have that kind of strong belief in, in America and its mission. I totally believe in our institutions. And I don't actually normally talk about this. My dad was a great man, rest his soul. But he also explained that when he was, you know, home on leave or back from the war, what happened was you had, at the time, it was like this group of hippies and other Americans who were against the war, taking their frustrations out on the people that were drafted to fight this war, the people that were forced to go and fight this war, and really had nothing to do with actually starting the war. What do I mean by that? They were spitting in their faces. They were throwing paint and urine on them. They were just harassing these American soldiers that came back from the war, like my father, riddled with PTSD and all of these mental um, health and physical health issues because their leaders sent them off to war. So I think what this says about my father, not maybe necessarily going to the left, and my views in upholding the institutions of government, but also needing to restore civility in our information ecosystem, is that he told me how damaging that was to be treated like crap by these people. And it's just instilled a belief that we need to treat people with respect. And sure as heck, Royfield, not take out our frustrations on our fellow citizens when it's the leaders who may be leading us astray. You took the words right out of my mouth there is that very obviously it's the leaders who helped a, a small but significant proportion of that generation kind of needlessly die in, in the jungles of, of Vietnam. Let us quickly pivot to America's strategic retreat or military defeat either one is applicable in Afghanistan. Do you believe in 10, 15 years hence that existentially we will see this as a pivot point in American geopolitics in, in the 21st century, akin to the fall of Saigon? 
that's that's an interesting question. Where I feel I think calling it a defeat is accurate, although you'll hear other people not use that language. I, I think unequivocally it was a military and, and state building exercise defeat where America was defeated. Honestly, Royfield, I hope that we can take lessons from this as a country, as a military, as our civilian political leaders, and not go into areas like Iraq where we went in and really sabotaged the Afghanistan mission uh, and not just start wars willy-nilly and where we have more thought, maybe Congress can take more power back. But ultimately, I don't know if I see this as something like a massive turning point in our foreign relations because it's been 20 years since the war started. It was a very embarrassing defeat and very embarrassing withdrawal from Afghanistan. But I I think that, if anything, our change in policy has been happening basically since President Obama's second term in office. And maybe this will be used to symbolize that shift in policy, which is going to be maybe away from the Middle East, maybe away from our allies in Europe, and towards Asia. But I don't think that this incident has inherently changed our foreign policy. I think it'll just be used to symbolize that change. Okay. Let's go back to your origin story. You go to school. What what do you do when, when you go to university, to college? I played baseball. So I went to, you know, a boarding school. And then I went to college because both, both of them, I, I got boatloads of financial aid because I was able to play baseball well, throw a round ball really hard. And then I went to Tufts University for undergraduate. And I could not be more grateful to go to that school for undergraduate studies. And I studied and majored in political science with a concentration in political philosophy. So Royfield, I got to study not only the political thought that led to the best institutions that government has ever seen in the world. But I also got to study then the specific nitty gritty development of the greatest government ever to exist from, you know, 1776 on up until today. So it was just an absolutely awesome experience. Tell me one thing which surprised you or that you no that you disagreed with about the teaching of American political science. There must have been something where you went, you know what? Nah, you know, the narrative I've been told here isn't quite the whole truth. For me, being a Brit, being an outsider and being a student of American history and politics only since uh, the, the mid 2000s, what I understand to be the narrative of, of America's political and kind of civic development has gone, I wouldn't say a total revolution, but it's definitely gone through an evolution. Did yours whilst you were studying at all? Yes, Royfield. So that's a really difficult answer to uh, give like something that I disagree with because of this. So I come from this conservative family and, you know, they were like, I didn't have a great knowledge of politics. It was more like talking points. And then I go to one of the most liberal schools in the United States, Tufts University. I think it's the first non-religiously affiliated school in the United States. Fun fact. And the student body population is like 98% liberal. I'm conservative. So it was, I disagreed with a lot at the time. But what I will say 
there I'll answer it like this, Royfield. Feel free to follow up or, or whatever. I think that there are a couple things that we do not know enough about and we are not taught enough about in primary school all the way through college. And that is specifically the way that the settlers of this country treated Native Americans and also the Reconstruction era. So those are two areas that I think even at a prestigious university like Tufts, I would have benefited greatly from more significant focus on that, not just in the electives. I'm saying in the core classes like intro to American political history, there, there should be more devoted to those specific topics. I, I, th I really think it's significant that you're somebody who kind of grew up in a conservative household had a conservative outlook on, on American history, but can actually see that with the traditional telling of the American story, that there are kind of many blind spots. Uh, it's one of the kind of like flashpoints of American life right now, so whether people call it teaching of CRT or, or just another way of looking at American history. There has been a very traditional narrative of how America was founded. And that is going through some level of evolution. I kind of hinted at it my, my, myself. Do you mind if I say something about, yeah, so I mean, like I said, I went to a very liberal school. I was there as an athlete and I rose my hand. I, I would speak up and I would add thoughtful comments and I would represent my values and the material that was being taught. And I think I won't swear but I think it is the biggest load of crap when you hear people attacking elite institutions for being liberal and saying that, that they're going to maybe brainwash people or change conservatives' views or silence conservative views. And, and what I will respond in fully, and I'm very passionate about this, is only a weak person in college will be influenced by their institution of learning not being a similar ideological bent to them, not being a student body that agrees with them. And I will say that because I was a different viewpoint, not only did I learn a ton more than probably most of my classmates from my other classmates, but I think my perspective was valued by the liberal professors that I had, even if I was still pushed to the left during school because I don't think facts have an ideological bent. Hmm. Obviously, you had this break in, in 2016. But what was the, app, the actual moment when he says, you know what, I, I can't do this anymore? All right. Take us back to then. Paint that scenario for us. Give us the lead up. Trump is running. He's being, he's being bombastic. All Mexicans are rapists coming down the, the golden escalators, et cetera, et cetera. Put us in your shoes. You know, you painted a really vivid picture of your family upbringing being conservative, going to, going to Tufts, being the conservative student, but debating, holding your own, and actually having your views on America maybe subtly slightly change. But you, you came to a hard stop being a Republican. Take us back to that point. Yeah, so Royfield, do you mind um, if I set the table a little bit of what it was like to work in the RNC? You go for it. 
Okay, so most people don't talk about like working in the RNC or DNC publicly. I don't know why. But so you got to realize, folks, we were, this is 2016. So this is five years ago. I was about 28. And it was filled with young kids from like top schools, like Harvard, William and Mary, University of Virginia, all these top schools, young kids, anywhere from 22 to 28. And then management was like Sean Spicer and people now that are executives at Fox News. And they were the older people, but they were typically upper management. So you walk into the building and you have a sense of camaraderie. You have a sense like you're all in a bunker during a war where you're just getting constantly degraded by the media for working for Trump. So, so that kind of bonds everybody together. But it's this open floor seating plan. So it's a bunch of young kids. You're sitting next to people you're working with. And it's an open floor seating plan. And then above you and throughout the whole RNC, there on the first floor, there were probably 30 or 40 TVs. And you might think the RNC is going to be watching Fox News, but that's not the case. Our job wasn't to influence Fox News. We'd give, we'd create our talking points and the, and free, the free beacon, which you can, if you're in the UK, you can go Google this, Breitbart. These trashy right-wing papers would take our talking points, would take our scoops and just run them as is. Same with Fox News in a lot of cases. They would ultimately take my talking points and just run them without fact-checking. So our job was to influence MSNBC, was to influence CNN, was to influence the New York Times, was to influence true mainstream media outlets. So you go back to the TV's open floor plan, about 40 young people, 28 to 22, all working together, all listening to MSNBC, CNN, and then the broadcast news stations all day. And it was just a constant, because it's like center news and then left of left news, just a constant attack, not only on Trump, but on the Trump campaign, on the RNC. Rachel Maddow was calling us all idiots. And they're, regardless if you agree or disagree with the people at the RNC and the Trump campaign, these people were not idiots. So it was very difficult to listen to on a daily basis. But for me, I had already disagreed a lot with what President Trump was doing and saying, but I always held out the belief, okay, as this evolves, as we get through the primary, as we get into the general election, the old guard of the Republican Party is going to come in and restore order to this candidate, restore order to this campaign, and he's going to be less manic and less insane and less just horrible. And that never happened, Royfield. That never happened. You had Reince Priebus in there. You had a whole host of other people, Paul Ryan talking to him. You had a whole host of just conservative establishment figures trying to talk sense to him, and it never happened. What broke me was ultimately when he was at, when the, the Gold Star families was at the DNC. And the Gold Star family for our foreign audience is a family that has lost a member of their, the, that's lost like a family member, a son, a husband, a wife, a daughter in a war. And it's like, if you're a patriot and if you love America and you are a true American, you exonerate these people and you hold them up because of the sacrifice that they've made for this country. Well, there were a, a Gold Star family at the DNC and they had 
attacked President Trump for not understanding and reading the Constitution, which looking back, they turned out to be right. And what President Trump did wasn't ignore it, wasn't take the high road. He got right into the mud and started denigrating this family, started talking trash about this family and essentially mocking them for the sacrifices that they've made. And that was the point, Royfield, where I was like, this is just horrifying. And I'm like, I can't keep doing this. This is awful. So that was when I really was like, I'm done. This, I'm not voting for this person. I'm voting for Hillary Clinton. We live in a binary world. If you're not voting for Hillary, you're voting for Trump, even if you're voting for a third-party person. Was Then he comes out, and there's this stupid, and it's taken me a lot not to, to curse here, I feel. There was this awful Hollywood access to moved on her and I failed. I'll admit it. Whoa. I did try and fuck her. She was married. <laughs> huge news there. No, no, Nancy. Yeah. No, this was and I moved on her very heavily. In fact, I took her out furniture shopping. She wanted to get some furniture. I said, I'll show you where they have some nice furniture. <laughs> I took her out furniture. I moved on her like a bitch. But I couldn't get there. And she was married. And all of a sudden I see her. She's now got the big phony tits and everything. She's totally changed her look. I gotta use some tic tacs just in case I start kissing her. You know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. Just, yeah. I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab them by the pussy. <laughs> I can do anything. And I mentioned the 40 TVs in, in the RNC. So the Hollywood access tape comes out. And literally, the Clinton campaign and the super PACs and the big money I mean, Royfield, every 10 minutes, you'd hear the President Trump talking about sexually harassing, sexually assaulting women. And it started out like it was like a joke by a lot of people at the RNC. But now I meant I go back to the open floor plan to the left. I'm sitting next to two girls to the right. It's a, it's a dude. And I keep hearing this presidential candidate bragging about like sexually assaulting women and i hear the girls laughing but it's it's not funny like i don't think they think it's funny either and just hearing that on loop on loop on loop not only made me know that this dude is bad but it also like made me begin to reevaluate a lot of the policy positions i had a lot of what the republican party stands for and just made it very easy to to leave that shit just just in the common consensus at the time was that the Access Hollywood tape was going to sink Trump. It didn't. Common consensus at the time during the Democratic National, well, it was during the RNC, I think it was, when Trump then started attacking that, that family who'd lost their son. Common consensus was you can't do that. But Trump got away with it. Why were you, do you believe, one of the only people in your unit that basically said, you know what, no, no more with this. I know you didn't actually leave. You still continued to work. Did other people basically say, no, they can't do this anymore as well. We can't follow this man. Let's put aside the wider leadership because there's a, a failure of leadership within the RNC, though many more mainstream figures of the RNC said, well, of course he's toast. You know, this is, you know, he, you know, he cannot win. Why do you think you left and other people who you worked with didn't? 
it's a really good question, Royfield. I think maybe it was from studying political philosophy in school and then going and maybe I had different life experiences, Royfield, coming from, you know, a working class, like a true working class blue collar family than a lot of the other kids who were born with silver spoons in their mouth and got the jobs through the networking that I talked about, but I can only speak to myself. And what happened with me was when all of this stuff was happening, the gold star family, that, that was tough. Cause I was taking care of my dad who had cancer and was a Vietnam veteran at the time. I moved him in with me to live with me in Northern Virginia and take care of him. So I was like working a hundred hours a week and also a caretaker for this veteran who liked Trump, by the way. But that that was tough to, because it, it hit me viscerally. But it broke me, Royfield. It, like, you got to realize, because to, to switch parties, like we discussed earlier, you're burning down your political network. And to get a job in D.C., you need a political network. So it needs to, like, just absolutely break you. And the comments about the Hollywood access tape and then listening to that stuff ad nauseum combined with the racist comments about Mexicans, the just campaign of xenophobia, the stuff he said about inner cities, about black people. It just was so much that I was pardon my language, Royfield, but I got to the point where I'm like, fuck it. If I have any integrity, I'm not going to support this. This is not me. And the, the last thing I'll say is, for other people, Hillary Clinton was a bad candidate who ran a bad campaign and was easy for my colleagues at the RNC to hate. So maybe for I didn't hate her. Maybe they used this hatred of Hillary Clinton to justify that despite Trump being a bad person, it was better than the alternative, along with a party whose policies they didn't agree with. So you're not you're not actually a Democrat. You are a Republican, but you're a never-Trumper. Would that be fair? No, not at all. I'm a card-carrying liberal Democrat right now. Okay, so there's still another bit of your journey which you need to explain then, because what you said is reflexively, this man is awful. He doesn't stand for Republican ideals that you thought all other Republicans espoused. But at no point have you actually said, that the message of Hillary Clinton actually chimed with you. It's just that you were reviled by Trump. It's a great question, isn't it? So I was always a moderate Republican. And what do I mean by that? Always socially liberal. I always believed in trying to have policies that kept America as the leader in the world, a global hegemony. And the way that I prioritized these policies was economics. And you got to realize, Royfield, I don't talk about this much, but my first job out of college, I was a lobbyist for a Fortune 400 company. So that was like my introduction into policy. And it was through international trade and policies that benefited this corporation. And through benefiting this corporation, it would benefit the American economy, which would help us maintain our world standing and it would help us maintain cheap goods and it would be a great thing. So my priority was always the American economy first and foremost through the lens of a big company 
but then President Trump comes along and his disgusting, deplorable language and actions make me rethink my allegiance to the point where I break from the party. And because it broke me, I had to look inward on my priorities and values. And while I always valued civil rights, I figured, much like Ben Rhodes, that the arc of history was in one direction and that no matter what, we would advance civil rights, even if I was a Republican and the party wasn't maybe for that, and that we would advance opportunity for all because that's the way history moved. But seeing Trump up close made me realize that that's a lot of hogwash. And that is not just not how things work. That Obama Ben Rhodes view is just not true. It's outdated. It's stale and doesn't make any sense. So I reordered my values. And you know what? opportunity for all, a, a fair chance, rose up the list way ahead of corporations. The way I viewed corporations was no longer necessarily a partner in our economy, but maybe they have some ability to spend some money through Citizens United that shouldn't be. Maybe they are not taxed enough and so on and so forth. So I basically put like human rights as, as the initial not only human rights, but also the lower and middle classes for opportunity as the way I was now viewing policy from an economic standpoint, as opposed to the top-down corporate viewpoint, which my world was initially shaped on. And the last thing I'll say here is during the George Floyd protests, I mean, I was already a liberal, already working for Puerto Rico, but during the George Floyd protests, I went out and protested. And actually, I was peacefully protesting and like, stopping like Antifa people from destroying stuff. But I was ultimately arrested. And I don't tell many people like that. I was interviewed on the news and stuff. But I was arrested for breaking the curfew, spending two seconds where I was afraid the police were going to hurt me and realizing what we were protesting for, the murder of a black man at the hands of the police and understanding that people go through life with this existential dread when they encountered the police that I had never experienced before, just like sealed the deal, made it clear that my evolution of thoughts and policies and beliefs to me was the right move. And I truly believe in this stuff, Rayfield. Thank you for that, Justin. Uh, let's go through and let's uh, tell me, explain to us why it's so hard for a party activist i don't know if you're called a hack or you know just member whatever in washington why is it so hard to go to the other side of the aisle i would have thought in these hyper partisan times the other side would be crying out for people who are defecting for want of a, of a better word because you're going to bring so much intel on the other side why institutionally does Washington not want people who used to work for the other party? Well, there's bias, Roy, Royfield, whether inherent, innate bias or explicit bias. And you got to realize that a lot of these people who work for Democrats or Republicans come up in the campaign world, especially the more senior staff who are doing the hiring, the chief of staffs the legislative director for everybody in the audience, chief of staff is closest to the congressperson and they help with political maneuverings. They help the member of Congress 
rise up in Congress itself, so they have more power, or the legislative director, who basically is the office manager and runs the legislative analysis and assists with communications. So there's a lot of bias because if you go through a campaign cycle, and I wasn't like this at the RNC just because I have so much antipathy for President Trump, people really do feel like they have bunker mentality and they feel like it is a zero-sum game because it is a zero-sum game. And they begin to hate their opposition and believe a lot of the campaign crap on both sides that they're selling. So then they come out of the campaign, they get a job on Capitol Hill, and they have this tribal mentality. Now, add that into the fact where if you're applying for a job with a member of the Senate who is well-regarded or like a company that is well-regarded or a member of the House that is well-regarded, there's going to be one job opening and over 300, 400 applicants with maybe 100 of them qualified. So they're not thinking about it from the perspective of let's increase diversity of thought from somebody who has this different political experience and can maybe offer us uh, something that we're not seeing and help us fix a blind spot. They just ultimately try and pick the best qualified candidate based on a cookie cutter resume that is fits a mold of all of their other hires. The last reason is because a lot of these jobs that aren't publicly posted, they get applicants through insider networking. And if you're doing what I did, which is leaving the Republican Party, it's potentially career suicide because the way to get a job in Washington, D.C. is through somebody you, you used to work for or somebody that you used to work for who knows somebody else and will recommend you. And it's a very backroom kind of thing. So when you switch parties, many people don't do it because you're burning down your whole career network and trying to break into the other party without that leg up. So those are the reasons why it's very, very difficult to switch. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Parties. I'm going to make you king, emperor, president. 
just for a day. How would you then improve diversity on Capitol Hill in the back staff, but also with congressmen and senators? Just as a way of compare and contrast, I think in the Icelandic parliament, it's not women in the majority now. In Finland, uh, the leaders of all the major political parties, and there's five, they're all female, all in their 30s, apart from one who's in, in her 40s. In the United Kingdom, we have 32% of MPs are women, it's still not 50, but at least it's heading in the right direction. And some 15% of MPs are from a visible minority. America's still got some way to go. Your King Emperor President, how are we going to get some more diversity in Capitol Hill in terms of its politicians, but also in the political hacks that help the politicians, Justin? I would say patriots, Royfield, that want to make their country better and have no problem doing so in the background in a grueling, grueling job with very little praise. So <laughs> I'm not sure I agree with hack, but maybe that's when we're disagreeing a little bit. So no, 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 honest- they're, they're all patriots. They're all patriots. I said that somewhat tongue in cheek, but fundamentally, you're king emperor. How are we going to do this? Yeah. So first, increase pay. That needs to be done for, I'm talking about staff members, right? So if you come to Washington, D.C., now they pay interns, still not nearly enough. I came from a lower middle class family. My dad had to take out a loan, and I didn't get paid anything in Washington, D.C., living in the most expen- one of the most expensive cities in the U.S., and I worked for free and had to spend like five, six, seven thousand $7,000 that my family didn't have to get an internship, which got my foot into the door. Now, the same problem applies to any type of underserved community, no matter the demographic. If you don't have money, you're not going to be able to do that internship. Second, most people in politics don't make the jump I did, which was after a year, I was basically mid-level in an office. Most people start out as what's called a staff assistant. So that's like a secretary that drives around the congressperson. So they're making, when I was back there in 2015, they were making like $30,000 a year. Let's say they've, they've raised that up to 33000 In D.C., it, that's not enough to live, but make, it, make matters worse, Royfield. You very likely, as a requirement for this job, need to have a car to drive the member around. So that adds another cost barrier for anybody who's not wealthy to get into this type of work. So that would be the first thing, is raise salaries. Uh, the next, the, the second part would be for the parties themselves to prioritize this and to have diversity initiatives, especially the Republican Party. I mean, I remember the RNC, it was like, I, I don't remember, 95% white. And if you weren't um, doing the, the PR booking, which was dealing with PR folks at media networks, you were probably a white male doing all the substantive thinking work. And that's just absolutely ridiculous. There's no need for that at all. Um, it, it was very off-putting, actually. So that's from the staff perspective. Pay more, prioritize it within each party. And then on the candidate side of things, I would say that the parties should look for candidates that fit their districts, and they should also prioritize it. 
the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, maybe they don't have that much of a sway in a general election or in a national election or a statewide election, but their endorsements do mean a lot for candidates running for Congress. They mean a lot. It means infrastructure. It means access to funding. It means name value and, and surrogates and just know-how, institutional knowledge. So, Royfield, I think the parties need to take a step to really care about it. And I could be wrong, but I think more Republican women have been running and winning lately, which, regardless of whether you agree or disagree with their views, is a good thing because it's more diversity. It's time for me to say you are listening to a recording of the podcast Mid-Atlantic, which has been running for some seven years, where I speak to friends and influential people about US, UK and Canadian politics. So if you um, haven't done so already, maybe after the recording of this show, go into a podcast of your choice and uh, go and listen to some of our output because there's quite a lot of it after seven years worth of doing podcast recordings. Today, we are speaking to Justin Higgins. Some call him the king of Clubhouse, and uh, I, I call him the, the, the king emperor of Clubhouse. He does a very successful room, Politics and Media 101, where he gets great thinkers and politicians consistently onto his show in his room day after day. Justin, before we start to open this up so people from the audience can come up and ask you a question, tell us your Clubhouse origin story. How did you find the app? Who invited you? Tell us about your early forays on this app before you did Politics and Media 101. Well, Royfield, my best friend from high school, Brian Burton, folks can click on my profile and see him. He invited me on because he's like, Justin, you're going to love this app. And it was in February, mid-February, when the app was just like Bill Gates, Elon Musk, a whole host of thought leaders, and it was just fascinating because it was intellectual conversations hosted by people who actually were experts. And my first week, I just listened. And then I started to slowly talk and host rooms. And not long thereafter, Royfield, I'm like, hot darn, there's an opportunity here to have a serious interview-based show town hall type show where it's half interview, basically similar to what you do here, half audience questions and do it consistently and use the buzz of this app clubhouse to help me book all of these amazing guests. And it was through seeing that, you know, in early March, seeing this opportunity that nobody, I don't think they saw it. If they saw it, they didn't want to put in the effort to do it. And then just literally putting in a ton of work to pitch these people and then prepare for interviews and then do the interviews. And it was a pretty bad product early on. Everybody thought they liked, they said they liked it. I, I don't know. But the product has just gotten so much better. Our show, which you can find on any podcast, just type in politics space, the plus sign space media 101. You know, I have a team of four people, Jeff Browning, Peter Chow, John Gunnison. We take it very seriously and we prepare questions and interviews. And we went from interviewing, you know, my friends, a state senator, my friends, a local media person, to now next week, we have Congresswoman Debbie Dingell, who's friends with Speaker Nancy Pelosi coming on, a conservative congressman, Ken Buck. 
and even CBS News's John Dickerson. So it just goes to show you that if you see an opportunity, if you work hard, and if you message that opportunity properly and surround yourself with people that are smarter than you and take it as seriously as you, uh, you, can, you, can, you can begin to kind of build something that, that you are proud of. So, Professor, another major current event that unfortunately we're still in the midst of is COVID-19. There has been drastically different responses to COVID-19 around the world based on the different types of government we have. Could you kind of go into what your view on the different responses we've seen says about the different abilities of a democracy or representative republic versus an authoritarian or extremely centralized government and their abilities to respond to existential crises. Well, you know, I wrote an article in Foreign Affairs last summer, in the summer of 2020, on this very subject. And I would say that if I had to do it over, I would have to take back a lot of the things that I said, because I don't, you know, it turns out that as the pandemic has gone on for much longer than anyone expected, the relative performance of different countries has begun to change. So that was a real kind of uh, thought leader, uh, hero of mine, Francis Fukuyama. And I must admit, Justin, I did kind of slightly wet my trousers, as we say in England, when you said you're, you're getting him on. You really have, in a relatively small, a short change of time, been able to, to pull in some great guests. But I need you to be honest. Who were you uh, most excited to get? Who's been emotionally your biggest get so far? Well, Royfield, I think they have adult diapers for that problem <laughs> of wetting your pants. But I would, can I give you two for different Absolutely. reasons? Absolutely. So I would say first was Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta because of the gravitas, the stuff that he has done being in the situation room when we so righteously took care of Osama bin Laden and gave him what he so dearly needed, which was a bullet to the head. And also because we knew we were going to be able to book more guests after him. Just booking him was like, I was a fanboy, like, oh, this is cool. I get to talk to him. But being able to put his name down on our pitch meant we would get Senator Warner and the 20 members of Congress that we have since booked. It, it was huge for the show. It was a huge moment for the show. Otherwise, emotionally, my, my pure favorite, not for the show, but just like, okay, this is super cool. We're a show about politics and media. We're a show that has a goal of bringing Republicans and Democrats together to listen to the same source of news in a civil way and then ask our guests, the audience gets to get up on stage and ask the guests directly what they want to know. I would say it was Clarissa Ward, Royfield, and this was before she was in Afghanistan and became the face of reporting from the withdrawal because she is good journalism. She is left or right what you want to see in a journalist and just getting her on before I knew what she was going to be come over the next month 
was absolutely fantastic because she's also super down to earth and super nice. So I was just like, oh man, this is super awesome. The whole ethos of your show, as I said in my preamble, is to be a large tent for American politics. Do you think you are quantitatively achieving that? Very obviously you get great guests on, but how do you know that, let's say, if I'm right-leaning, if I'm left-leaning, I can, I'm still going to take away uh, something from your shows? I think it's very easy now for, you know, in, in mid-Atlantic, you know, we, we, we're left of centre, but we don't demonise the other. I think it's easier to take a political view and uh, nail your colours to the mask, uh, whether it's right or left. So is it hard trying to be at least slap bang in the middle, at least appear to be? And how do you, and how are you actually measuring any quantifiable success in terms of trying to help tamper down the hyper-partisan febrile atmosphere, which is American politics in 2021? So that's a great question. First and foremost, Royfield, always feedback from the audience. If I book somebody that is very far left-leaning, I'll get a DM from somebody and they'll be like, this guest sucks. Like, what are you doing? Who are you going to book to balance this out? And then it's like, okay, Justin, we got to balance this out. We got to book, you know, a strong conservative after booking that progressive, which we always take into account. So that's one Royfield. Listen to the audience. Two is we don't allow the partisan hyperbole. We don't allow, and, and, and the guests get that Royfield. They can be a strong partisan Democrat. They can be a strong partisan Republican. They go through our little interview period and they very quickly, within the first few questions, get what we're trying to do. And most of these people, Royfield, were elected because they want to be thought leaders and they're passionate about policy. It's just in the media today, on Facebook, in our cable news media, they only get two or three minutes to make a clip go viral. They don't get to have a 30-minute, hour-long conversation about policy. So we're giving them a service because they want to be doing this. They don't want to be just attacking the other side. And we don't invite those people on that want to be attacking the other side, Democrat or conservative. And then the last rule, Royfield, is we treat everybody with respect and we ask very difficult questions in good faith. But I like to call this the idiot rule. If you come on the show and you are an idiot, you are not going to have a good time, Republican or Democrat, because we will not let you out of the hot seat if you're saying stuff that is inflammatory, that you can't back up logically. So if, if, if you're able to kind of one stick to audience feedback, take it constructively, don't take it personally. Two, ask substantive questions and good follow-ups that may be a little difficult, but guests will respect that. And three, follow the idiot rule. I don't see how you can go wrong. On immigration, um, I know that Republicans were for it in the late 80s with Reagan and bringing people over from the Eastern Bloc. Where do you see a conservative party on immigration? With immigration, Ronald Reagan, in his farewell address to the country, said, I believe we ought to have a wall, but the wall ought to have a large open gate for the kind of people who want to be Americans for the right reason. You know, we need the immigrants as much as the immigrants need America. Our birth rate is down. 
the ratio of workers to sustain the entitlement system to retirees is getting ominous. We need immigrants to replenish our aging workforce. Do you know that the most rapidly growing portion of the American population in percentage terms is Americans over 85 years old? That's older than I am, and that's pretty old. That was you in conversation with columnist George Will. Uh, now is the time, folks. Um, if you have a question uh, to put to, to Justin Higgins, maybe it's Justin, why don't you ever call upon me to come upon your stage? Now is the time. Please raise your hand and we will uh, call you up. Here's a question for you, Mr. Higgins, before uh, I'm going to throw uh, the mic over to, to Kelly, who's uh, been waiting for the best part of an hour. And the, the point that George Will was making, do you think that in in the Biden administration, there will be some dream act, there will be some accommodation for the dreamers? Very obviously, uh, as even George Will says, conservative commentator George Will says, you know, America actually needs immigration, but it's, uh, Repub- it's the Republican Party, which historically was uh, pro-immigration under Reagan. That's blocking this. Do you think that Biden will be able to come to an accommodation for the Dreamers? And if so, what needs to change in the in the Republican Party for this to happen? It's really bad to ever try and predict policy, Roy Field, just because of how unpredictable it is. But to answer your question simply, I would say no. There is very little chance of that happening, even though it is policy overwhelmingly approved of by voters of both sides. I think that. Ultimately, the Republican Party is just not in a place right now for it to be willing to do that. And then secondly, I personally think it's very, very likely that the Republicans win the House of Representatives in 2022. And if that happens, what typically happens, at least since President Obama, is the Republicans grind everything to a halt and become totally obstructionist because they don't want to give any policy wins to the party, the opposition party, the party of the president. So so for those two dynamics, I just don't think it's going to happen. Otherwise, I think that there needs to be some type of evolution within the Republican Party to allow this policy to get through. And it's not like it won't ever happen. It just you know, maybe a few years down the line. Right. Let's uh, throw the mic out. Uh, Kelly, uh, friend of the room, friend of the podcast, Kelly Saunders, do you have a question for Justin Higgins? I do. Um, I, but one thing I haven't heard you directly talk about is, uh, are the issues that you see with the Democratic Party, if any, and how you think that that the differences between the two parties, how, how you think that the direction they're going now and will wind up going maybe maybe after this era of, of Trump, where you think it'll wind up and, and what you have, I guess, hope for and where you see some real problems? Great question, Kelly. So my hope is that we kind of move away from, at least with the Republican Party, 147 members voting to not certify the election. We move away from questioning democracy. We move away from putting cultural issues first and not running on policy, where in 2020 there was no policy platform. I really want 
a very strong Republican Party because America needs two strong parties. And I want it to be a party that puts policy first and foremost. So that's on the right. On the left, I think that I, I one problem that I have with the left is I'm going to parrot some of the guests we had on the show. The loudest voices who get the most attention in the media ecosystem don't aren't the ones driving the policy. They're driving the discussion. So you have people on the left saying defund the police and all of this inflammatory rhetoric that not only does anything productive, but it creates this kind of foil in the media narrative to paint the whole party as being socialist or communist. So that's that's one thing, but that's only a minority of the left. For Democrats, I would like to see them get serious on big tech legislation. I would like to see the whole party get serious, not just a Republican Ken Buck and a Democrat David Cicilline and the Democrats on the House Judiciary Committee, but I'd like to see the whole party get serious. You have members like Eric Swalwell. He's not on the far left. You have members like him going out there and making a big show of misinformation and disinformation on social media, but he's not doing anything about it. So in a lot of ways, I wish, and Russia, I think, was massive problem in 2016. I think there's oodles and oodles of misinformation and disinformation on social media because of Russia. I think Democrats point it out all the time, but I don't see a party solution. If this is such an existential threat, why hasn't the party coalesced around one or two solid ideas? So I wish they would kind of walk the walk, Kelly, if, and some of them are, but I wish a lot more Democrats would walk the walk rather than just talk the talk it's really it's really frustrating uh right let's go through this in the order which i think people came up on stage uh steve crone i believe you were next sir howdy royfield howdy justin so justin i one of the things i love the most about what you're doing is although it's called politics and media and you do talk about politics it seems to me you talk a lot more about policy And even when you're talking about politics, it's always in reference to policy rather than simply, you know, a sports style coverage of who's winning and losing and who's going up and who's going down in the polls. Is is that is that the way you guys think about it or not? Great question, Steve. I think the way that uh, we think about it, at least I think about it, is you do the campaigning to win and to make policy. And once you start talking policy, you realize that a lot of the differences that are perceived between Republicans and Democrats because of the way that the campaigning goes aren't really there. (laughs) It's just the construction of the media. And to your point, Steve, I hate the type of political analysis that we see on cable news, the type of horse race stuff that we see, the type of stuff we see on Facebook and other social media apps that make it like not even a horse race, Steve. They make it like a wrestling or a boxing match, God forbid, where you're only winning points if you're drawing blood. And I just don't – that's not interesting to me, man. It's uh, We're not here to watch Jerry Springer. Maybe Royfield can throw in the equivalent in the UK. We're not here to watch trash. My show tries to bring the best minds in Congress, the best nonpartisan minds in think tanks 
to discuss the actual policy and the issues in a way that we can understand it and help to walk people through why these elections are important and how it impacts their day-to-day living. So yeah, Steve, that's, that's exactly right. And I believe the example was the uh, Jeremy Kyle show. For, for those uh, students of UK TV, if you want proper trash TV where people are literally throwing punches at each other. Thank you for that question, Mr. Crone. Brother Brent, you're up next, sir. Ask your question. Brother Royfield, good afternoon. Um, Justin, uh, hello. Uh, thanks for to you both for hosting Amazing Rooms. Justin, my question for you is, how would you advise Joe Biden in terms of the midterms? Like, are there any tricks that you feel like he could pull out of his sleeve that would give uh, the Democrats a better chance? For example, you know, a few things that come to mind for me would be continuing the freeze on student loan repayment indefinitely until Congress takes uh, some action uh, on student loan reform, descheduling marijuana and possibly even indicting Donald Trump for his many crimes. But what would you, uh, how would you advise him on this front? That's, that's a great question, Brent. Well, first off, I'd say get with the progressives, get with Joe Manchin. If you can't sit down in the same room with them because they don't like each other that much, maybe sit down in separate rooms and get this damn agenda through. And I'm not saying this from like my support for an agenda or anything like that, although I do support both of those bills. Get, get the bills through. And then, honestly, what, what, what I would say is that it's more messaging. So the child tax credit is one of the greatest alleviations of poverty uh, through policy in the last, I don't know, 50, 60 years. What I would do is I would sit down with moderates, I would sit down with progressives, and I would create a baseline of messaging that is going to be pretty similar throughout the country because of how nationalized politics are. So think of 1994. There was Newt Gingrich's contract with America. The Democrats can do something similar in that they can highlight some progressive policies that resonate with rural voters, some moderate policies like the infrastructure stuff that resonate with progressive voters, and they can go and have in each district hold up families who benefited from the child tax credit. For example, and Brent, I'm talking about day in, day out for six months before that election, you're messaging in all the districts that are tight that Joe Biden and then like AOC or Joe Biden and Josh Gottenheimer, who's a moderate, they are the reason for this. And you tailor that messaging to the district and you have these members of Congress, doesn't matter their ideology, standing next to these families and going through and highlighting different families, the different provisions in these progressive bills helped. So that would be my advice. So I apologize since the podcast is done. I let the dog out of the crate. But I will say this. Joe Biden has no role in criminal prosecutions. And if we want to avoid an autocracy and want to avoid the follies of President Trump, we would be very well advised not to hope that Joe Biden tries to prosecute anyone. It's, it's not American, it's unconstitutional, and it's something that needs to be avoided at all costs. I, I definitely agree with that. I was more just thinking, what can the executive branch do? I, I shouldn't have framed it as Joe Biden specifically, but the executive branch obviously includes the Department of Justice. And I think, you know, there's something like one to five odds right now that there will be an indictment 
it's it's something that I think that he should have an opinion on privately. I don't know about publicly, but yeah. I think we need to follow the evidence. That's what the executive branch can do. Uh, great question. And I think wise words uh, from you there, Mr. Higgins. Max Siegel, you're up next. Make sure your question's a good one, sir. Okay. Hi, hi Justin. Uh, good to see you here. Wanted to ask, you mentioned that one of the reasons you were so excited about Panetta, having Leon Panetta on, is that you knew that after that it would be easier to um, book new guests that would help your pitch. And I was just wondering if you could go into a little bit about, you know, what, what that pitch is, how you, how you convince people to come onto the show. You know, I imagine some people say, you know, what is Clubhouse? I've never heard of it. And, you know, what the challenges are. And secondly, have you noticed a, any kind of correlation between, you know, getting uh, bigger or, yeah, like more guests and, you know, the quality of the actual discussion? They're you know, not necessarily related. And finally, just the opposite of Roy Field's question to you about who your favorite guest was. Just want to see uh, who was who were you a little bit annoyed with? Who who? Uh, were you least excited for and why was it Ben Rhodes? Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. That was funny. <laughs> so, uh, oh man, you, you threw me for a loop there. It, it was not Ben Rhodes. Uh, ben Rhodes was a great guest. And I, I, I think that that was one of our best interviews because we got to ask him tough questions. <laughs> But let, let's let's take the one, two, three. So what is a pitch? A pitch is the way you reach out to a communications director or a journalist. And it's basically how you get them on the show. The way that we do it is really simple. And this is why booking Leon Panetta mattered, right? I am Justin Higgins. I am a relative nobody. My team is filled with relatively nobodies. We aren't really well known. So we needed to establish legitimacy. You can get legitimacy through a few ways. One being the podcast that we have, which is is everybody should check out Politics Space Plus Space Media 101. And you can find it on any of the platforms or you can go to PM101.live. That adds legitimacy because it shows the quality of the show. Another way that adds legitimacy, though, Max, is the guests that we've had on. So, for example, if I'm pitching a conservative in Congress... I'm going to list off maybe five or six guests that we've had on that are conservatives and also a couple of liberals that have big name cachet. So I'll list off Ken Buck, Peter Meyer, Bruce Westerman, all three are members of Congress. I'll list off the editor of the National Review, Rich Lowry. I'll list off George Will. And then I'll list off Senator Mark Warner and Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta. That's legitimacy. And then the other way is I just explain the nature of the show. We are a nonpartisan show where we do interviews and audience questions, and we try and get into the substantive issues without all of the partisan BS. So that's kind of the pitch that we do. And um, the second question was, well, I know your third question was least favorite guest. I would say we had a Wall Street Journal reporter on talking about guns. And it wasn't what he was saying. It wasn't his ideology. It was the fact that he was a vapid mind without any true research, without any true knowledge on the subject. And he was just reciting talking points. So it wasn't like the ideology he was presenting. It was his lack of 
knowledge, his lack of education on the topic, his lack of nuance. And it really feels like when you have somebody that doesn't really isn't truly an elite intellectual mind on stage, that they're probably giving you some propaganda and spin. And that leaves me a little bit unsatiated. But Max, what was your second question? It's about if uh, you see any kind of relation between the quality of the conversations and, you know, how high profile the guests have become. That's a really good question, Max. I would say, typically speaking, it's been an inverse relationship with the exception of Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta, maybe Congressman Peter Meyer. There, there are a handful, right, of members that have been great. I think the best quality discussions we've had, whether it be from the conservative Hudson Institute or the more centrist Carnegie and CSIS, tends to be the think tanks. So it's people that are maybe less well-known. Ben Rhodes was a fantastic, and he breaks the mold, but it typically tends to be the people who are less well-known that really know their subject matter expertise and are passionate about it as opposed to maybe a really prominent member of Congress who wants to talk about something and hues to their talking points. So I would say the, the lesser known people tend to be the better conversations. Thank you for those uh, excellent questions. There you go. That's been another Mid-Atlantic and a uh, one with a slightly different feel from before. We had Justin Higgins, big personality on Clubhouse, which is the platform where we actually do record uh, Mid-Atlantic. Don't forget, if you want to uh, contact us here at Mid-Atlantic, go to midatlanticshow.com. That is our website and hit the contact us uh, tab there and it will send an electronic message all the way into my inbox if you if you want to basically join us and there are five thousand of you that each week religiously loyally download this podcast and have been doing this for years quite simply go on to clubhouse uh, it's available on the apple itunes store and it's also available on google play download that app and it means that you can be in the audience when we do these shows live and you can hold your hand up and ask a question don't forget folks left to center politics is right thinking politics i'm roy phil brown see you all again in uh, approximately seven days time be good to you be good to your loved ones and be good to yourselves bye-bye flexibility is great that's why there's yoga flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too that's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. 
quince.com slash style. 